every 65 seconds, a new brain develops Alzheimer's. That's the first reason we're presenting this today. The second reason we are promoting this and offering this deep dive into the end of Alzheimer's is that because Bill Gates has very recently given $100 million of his own money to promote new ventures, new avenues of Alzheimer's research that many mainstream funders won't support. Now, our speakers today have come up with some exciting new avenues for the prevention or reversing of Alzheimer's, and we're gonna hear from them in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to present our moderator, George Vradenberg, who is the president and founder of Us Against Alzheimer's. And I hope that George will tell his own story about why he started this audacious fundraising uh, venture called Us Against Alzheimer's. But one, one or two words about George Bradenberg. George is a venture philanthropist, a new breed of problem solvers who focus their considerable resources to change the course of history in a field different from their own. George was general counsel of CBS and EVP at Fox and worked with Steve Case at AOL and then retired in 2003, moving on to civic and philanthropic efforts. He first set up an Alzheimer's study group with Newt Gingrich, Sandra Day O'Connor, Harold Varmus, and others in 2006, and then shortly thereafter formed a PAC to channel money and influence toward the prevention of Alzheimer's. They initially made a commitment to stop the disease by 2020, but the Obama administration changed the target to 2025. It's great work that he's doing. We're gonna hear some wisdom from George Vradenberg. George, come and take it away. Well, wisdom is a pretty high hurdle, uh, but uh, uh, I'm uh, delighted to be able to speak here today. I was just been blown away by this morning's speakers. Uh, everyone who, who opened my mind to a variety of additional possibilities in my life's mission, which is to solve Alzheimer's. Thank you, Glenda, for inviting me. So Us Against Alzheimer's was formed by four, four individuals, basically because our families had been affected by the disease. My late wife's mother and grandmother uh, died of this disease 25 years after her mother had been diagnosed. Nothing seemed to be happening. So in 2010, we decided, what the heck? We've got to get into this game and disrupt the heck out of what seemed to be business as usual and sort of a sluggish approach. Uh, Meryl Comer, who is with us today and many of whom you know, uh, wrote a book called Slow Dancing with Alzheimer's about her experience with her husband, she, for whom she's been an at-home caregiver for 22 years. Jill Lesser uh, is the prototypical sandwich mother, sandwich woman, uh, with a mother with Alzheimer's and three rambunctious teenagers growing past teenage years, uh, and so she is trying to balance a life which is extraordinarily complicated on both ends. Jill is here today. She's the president of our Women Against Alzheimer's Network. So we bring a different point of view about this. We're not a professional organization in the traditional sense of a large vertically integrated organization with paid staff. We're basically putting money into it. 
in order to drive a solution. So we're differently motivated, passionate, urgent, we're impatient, we want to disrupt things, we don't want business as usual. So we're going after it in, in spades with that point of view. And we're finding that a patient-driven organization is much more powerful as a change agent. Why? Because we're neutral. We want every company to win. We don't care which company wins. We want every company to win. We don't care uh, if, in fact, uh, one academic scientist or another gets a Nobel Prize. We'd like 100 of them to win the Nobel Prize because they found the solution to Alzheimer's. So we're basically a trusted voice that's in the middle, that's known to be neutral, that where people can gather pre-competitively across sectors uh, in order to drive a problem-oriented uh, solution. So my job today, I'm going to ask one question. How many people here have been, in their families or in the families of friends, been touched by Alzheimer's? So that's uh, two-thirds, three-quarters, and that's what you will find in virtually every audience when you ask that question. It's the most extraordinarily prevalent disease in the world today. In just a minute, I'll give you some statistics. So I've got about 10 minutes to basically describe three things. What's the scope and scale of the problem at a global level? What's the status of drug development and the efforts to try and find a drug-related treatment? And third, how does the brain health stuff, all of which you've been hearing about, in terms of risk reduction uh, and attention to brain health relate to drug development, if it does. So let me, I said to myself, um, aging is predictable. We know the world demographics on aging. You can predict that within 0.1%. We know that uh, the, the incidence of Alzheimer's, pretty predictable, although to some extent it's actually uh, getting a little less, but, uh, but basically you can predict the incidence of Alzheimer's, and you can predict the cost based upon the number of cases. So what do I do? I say, look, this is the second inconvenient truth of the 21st century. We know predictably what's going to happen with this disease. And so I plotted Al Gore's famous CO2 uh, levels uh, going through time against, in this case, the global population over 65, a remarkable strike. Now, this is, this is not to say the CO2 levels cause Alzheimer's or vice versa, but what it does say is that, in fact, we are, have a unique point in a human history where people are living over 65, they're aging. Indeed, two-thirds of the people that have ever lived past 65 are alive today, and it's only going to change. So this is the global cost of Alzheimer's. As you can see, this is a more striking upward curve very rapidly in the coming years. The scale goes to 2050, which is about where the estimates are going. And this is the global cost and population. So 150 million people by 2050, and the costs are going to be $3 trillion to the global economy simply of taking care of those people. So a variety of at attributes of this beyond just those numbers, which are pretty striking in and of themselves, for every person with dementia or Alzheimer's, and I'll explain in a second the difference as somebody asked me to do today, um, uh, there are two or three caregivers. So when you say, gee, there are going to be 50 million people with this disease, um, uh, excuse me, 150 million people with this disease by 2050, add two to three people who are caregivers to that population, and you've got 300 to 450 million caregivers. So you've got a half a billion people who essentially are not in the workforce or are not productive members of society and who are drained by the bearing of this disease. Family, it's a family disease, uh, and it's a community disease. It's not just the individual with the disease. 
And of course, two-thirds of the victims are women, two-thirds of them are caregivers, two-thirds of the caregivers are women. So women are being increasingly drawn from either lightening up their participation in the job market, going part-time, pulling back from the job market to take care of a loved one for a period of time, or even just dropping out of their career. Meryl Comer is our, our family example because she, in fact, was a prominent journalist who basically left her career to take care of her husband. This disease, at least in the United States, it treats blacks, African-Americans, and, uh, and Latinos differently. Two to three times more likely, if you're uh, African-American, to have this disease at any particular age. One and a half times uh, greater likelihood uh, if you're Latino as opposed to a non-Latino white. So that means that the already existing health disparities in our society are gonna be aggravated to heck uh, by the increasing incidence of this disease. And because of the out-of-pocket costs associated with this disease, family incomes are going down, and we're going to see growing income inequality in this country. This is not a disease uh, that is going to be um, impacting deeply your lives, this demographic in this room, but it's going to be deeply impacting the ability of a family to support themselves in the coming years. So let's talk a little bit about the state of drug development. You've heard about all the drug failures recently. What have we learned from those drug failures? We've learned two things. Either we're going for the wrong targets, amyloid, beta amyloid, you've heard a lot about, as a toxic protein in the brain thought to be a contributor to or a trigger of this disease. Maybe that's wrong. And second, uh, we're going too late in the disease, but by the time you actually administer a treatment to somebody with symptoms, it may be too late in the course of the disease to be able to slow or stop the disease progression. And so maybe we've got to go earlier, to the very earliest stages of the disease, and maybe even to people who don't yet have the symptoms in order to administer a disease-modifying drug to slow things down uh, so that you don't get symptoms. So this is the existing drug pipeline. It's a little busy, um, uh, but on the right, You'll see phase three drugs. This has been pretty consistent over the years. For every drug failure, every drug that's dropped out, a new drug is entering phase three. And if you look at the left hand, that's phase two. That's up 20% year over year. So there are more drugs coming into the pipeline. And in fact, just by the array of colors, you're going to see a greater variety of drugs in phase two moving to phase three in the coming years. So you'll see stem cells on this, uh, the, the dark blue at the bottom. Uh, the stem cell therapies are on this. There are therapies that are aimed at cardiovascular implications of Alzheimer's. There are drugs that are aimed at the diabetic or metabolic implications of Alzheimer's. So there's a diversification of what's coming through the pipeline. That's good. That says, gee, if we're aiming at the wrong target, maybe in the years, two or three or four years, by the time phase two drugs get to market, or get to the phase, final phase three, we'll have some additional targets. Uh, and uh, there's still prevention drugs in the phase two and phase three, which means they're being given to people at the very earliest stage that you can detect cognitive impairment uh, and, and potentially even in pre-symptomatic populations. Let me just stop for a second. What's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Dementia is a description of a set of symptoms. It's a symptom that says cognitive impairment is inhibiting your ability uh, to perform activities of daily living. It is not a disease. Dementia is not a disease. It's not the cause of anything. Dementia is a description of the symptoms. It's like pain. Pain is not itself a disease. It's something that's causing the pain that's the disease. So with respect to dementia, Alzheimer's is the cause of two-thirds to three-quarters 
of dementia. But there's also frontal temporal lobe dementia that affects the front part of the brain, the executive function starts there rather than in the hippocampus, that's the memory section, and there are other forms of the other causes of dementia. There's a broader class of diseases called neurodegenerative disease. So that would include all of the Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases, dementia-caused diseases, but also Parkinson's, ALS, uh, and uh, multiple sclerosis. So how does brain health relate to this? Well, you've heard a lot about uh, all of the various things that are going on in the brain health space. We now can identify the risk factors, uh, many of the risk factors for Alzheimer's, whether it's cardiovascular, diabetic, lack of sleep, overstress, um, sedentary lifestyle, you name it. You've heard it all this morning, uh, and we heard it all yesterday at the, at the uh, access circles uh, convening around women's brain health. We know a lot of the risk factors for Alzheimer's. And we know that, in fact, you can reduce those risk factors or mitigate them. We also know that, in fact, you may be able, through a variety of interventions that don't relate to drugs, to actually reduce your risk for Alzheimer's, defer it, or maybe even avoid it. Because just because you have cognitive impairment doesn't mean you have Alzheimer's. There are lots of causes of cognitive impairment that can be treated. So all of our shyness about going to the doctor and asking about, gee, I don't feel well with the brain, Ask, because the doctor should be able to treat many causes of cognitive impairment that has nothing to do with Alzheimer's. So I would suggest that, in fact, everything you've heard today has got some scientific basis to it, a lot of scientific basis to it. And the studies are now going on to figure which are the best ones, because one of the great challenges is to figure out which is the most productive, what is the most impactful of these risk reduction strategies. And then the great, great challenge is, how do we change our behaviors in a way that will reduce the risk? Because I'm looking at 150 million people with Alzheimer's or dementia around the world in the next 35 years. And all of the things that you hear about are probably attuned to the private payer, top one to 2% of wealth in the United States. Not much diversity in this room, ladies and gentlemen. Not much socioeconomic diversity, uh, not much uh, racial diversity in this room. And I would submit to you that while we can each look at all of what we've heard about what we ought to do in our own lives, until we find an effective way to scale non-therapeutic interventions, which is what you're going to hear about, diet, exercise, and other interventions, we're only going to be dealing with a very thin layer of the global problem that we're confronting. So with that, Thank you very much for your time, and we'll get on to the panel. So Dale, I didn't see Dale before I got, here, before I got up here. Dale, Dale Bredesen and I have known each other for many years. He is uh, one of the foremost thinkers in this field. He is, uh, I knew him from the Buck Institute, but he now has an additional role down at UCLA. Uh, and he has written a very intriguing book called The End of Alzheimer's. Maybe we don't need drugs. Let's just skip right to the solution of the problem. So, Dale, thank you very much. That's good to see you. Thanks, George. All right. Thanks very much, George, and thank you to Glenda, and thank you to the Aspen Institute for this uh, wonderful invitation to this exciting meeting. This has been, been great. 
Uh, I want to talk to you today uh, about something very different. And first of all, let me ask, how many people here would like to avoid Alzheimer's disease? <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay. And let me ask, how many people here have had a colonoscopy? Most of the people in the room have had a colonoscopy. Good for you. You did the right thing. How many people here have had a cognoscopy? Okay, so just as George was saying, we need to, so we need to prevent this illness, which is going to bankrupt Medicare. You've heard some remarkable figures, unfortunately, all of which are true, uh, about what's going to happen to us going forward. About 15% of our population, as Glenda said earlier, will unfortunately develop Alzheimer's if we don't do something about it. So what I want to talk to you about today is what happens when you look under the hood? So we've had the lab up for 30 years now, and very simple question for 30 years, which was, could we understand the phenomenon of neurodegeneration, what actually happens at the molecular level, in enough detail that we could ultimately begin to fashion the first effective treatments? So let's go to the next here. So imagine now that you went in you took your car in, it's not working very well, and the, uh, the mechanic said to you, oh yeah, we, we recognize this, we see it all the time, this is car not working syndrome. <laughs> and you said, well, wait a minute, I mean, and they said, yeah, you know, older cars, it's common, it's not working well. And you say, well, you know, would you like to do some tests? He said, oh, there's nothing that can fix it, there's, we, you know, we don't know what causes it, there's nothing that can fix it, and you say, well, could you do some tests, check a few things? Well, no, those tests aren't reimbursed, you know, we don't do those tests. This is the problem we have had, and I do think in the future we are going to look back on the immediately preceding era as the dark ages of Alzheimer's disease. If you go to an Alzheimer's center today, you will not be told why you have Alzheimer's disease. We say we don't know where it comes from. And in fact, there is a fundamental medical revolution taking place. And of course, you're going to hear from Mark Hyman, who's one of the chief architects of this medical revolution. And if you look back to 20th century medicine, the way I was trained when I went to medical school, it was all about what it is. Is it Alzheimer's? Is it Parkinson's? Is it heart failure? That's what we were taught to figure out. 21st century medicine is fundamentally different. It is about why it is. And if you look at all the contributors, why did you get this problem? Why do you have cognitive decline? Why do you have hypertension? If you go into your doctor today and the doctor tells you you have hypertension, what's the chance he's going to tell you why you have hypertension? And what's the chance he's going to, he or she, is going to write you a prescription for an antihypertensive? This is what needs to change. We are dying now from illnesses that we weren't typically dying from 100 years ago. In the 20th century, of course, many of us, especially in the first half of it, were dying of simple acute illnesses, pneumococcal pneumonia, tuberculosis, things like that. And we had a very good strategy. You wait for the symptoms to come on, you get the drug, you get better. In the 21st century, almost all of us are dying of complex chronic illnesses, from Alzheimer's to cancer to cardiovascular disease, things like that. These things are not typically caused by one agent. Therefore, writing a prescription does not work very well. We need to understand for each case why this happens. 
Okay. So how many people know about the Ansari X Prize? You remember the X Prize? So there are X Prizes for a number of things now, but the original one was the Ansari X Prize. And what this was about was that you wanted to be able to, and this was the challenge, to put a man into space twice within one week, so it's commercial space flight. And interestingly, the engineer who developed the the answer, the, the one that ultimately worked, very, made a very interesting point. There was no ability to do this when he started, and he realized anything that was going to work was going to be outside the box. So he, his point was, any idea that we came up with to get the person out and then bring him back commercially twice within a week was going to be something that people would say is crazy. Because he said anything that was inside the box, we already know doesn't work. So whatever the answer is going to be, is going to be something that when the first person thinks of it, is going to sound crazy. And that is what's happening in developing treatments for illnesses that have been untreatable. So interestingly, what he came up with was a spacecraft that actually could change shape dramatically while it is in space. Sounded crazy, it's the thing that ultimately got the prize. So we have a sad, sad state of affairs, as you know right now, in Alzheimer's. Patients wait way too long because they know that there's nothing that can be done. They finally go into their primary care provider. The primary care provider then says, well, look, I don't need to send you to a specialist because I can write a prescription for Aricept. Doesn't work very well. They write the prescription. So the, pot the problem is that they wait finally to get to a center. Finally, when they're very late in the process, they go into a specialist. And what does the specialist tell them? Number one, we're gonna make sure you don't have a driver's license. Number two, we're gonna make sure you can't get long-term care insurance. Once it says memory problems on your chart, you cannot get long-term care insurance. And look, there's nothing I can do to help you, but would you mind coming back every six months so I can do a spinal tap on you and renew my grant? That's how bad things are at the best centers. And let me show you an example here. This is from what is recognized as one of the most outstanding centers in the country. I won't mention which one, but this is from a real patient. MRI of the brain, blood for complete blood count, metabolic panel. I asked the patient and his wife to keep an eye on his disabilities. I prescribed Dinepazil, five milligrams. Okay, here's what the person did not do. And this is at one of the best Alzheimer's centers. This is the gold standard of the gold standard. No genetics. Didn't ask whether this person was APOE4 positive, which is the most common risk factor for Alzheimer's, genetic risk factor. TREM2, CD33, on and on, all the genetic markers. <clears throat> None of them were checked. Nothing about CRP. How many people here know their HSCRP? Okay, so maybe about 10 people. So. It is related to the inflammation we heard about today. Nothing about interleukin-6 or anything about whether this person actually had any inflammatory process going on that may have been contributing to his possible Alzheimer's. Nothing about homocysteine. How many people know their homocysteine? Okay, a number of people. Related to methylation, related to detoxification, and a number of things, including how rapidly your brain atrophies. Nothing about fasting insulin. How many people know their fasting insulin? Yeah, good thing, and as Mark Hyman has pointed out, we'd like to see it at five or less. And so many people walking around with very high fasting insulins, this again is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and something that can be modified. 
Nothing about hormonal status, nothing on toxin exposure, nothing about the status of the innate immune system, which is what drives the amyloid that is produced in Alzheimer's that George mentioned a few minutes ago, is produced as part of the innate immune system's response. Nothing on gut health. We've heard so much about gut health, wasn't even checked. Nothing on microbiome, nothing on blood-brain barrier. Prescribing denepazil without a diagnosis, this person's BMI was 33, so this person was about 50 to 60 pounds overweight. Wasn't even mentioned. It was as if the head is cut off from the rest of the body. No plans to address this. And then this person happened to have prediabetes, again, a key risk factor, nothing to address that. So this is the gold standard workup in our best centers today. This has got to change. We've got to address this in a different way, just as the Ansari X Prize had to create a satellite, literally, that would change shape. So here's the current standard. One cause, we don't know what the cause is, it's Alzheimer's. One disease, Alzheimer's disease. One treatment, it's a monotherapy, and as you already heard, it's ineffective. Here's what the research says, and we've had the lab up, as I said, for 30 years looking at what actually drives these problems. There are at least 36 different contributors that we've identified, and there are probably a few more, but there are probably not thousands, but there are dozens. There are six subtypes of this. This is a, not a one disease, it's subtypes, and you can figure out which subtypes you're dealing with, and often people will have combinations of those. And there are many treatments. This is a personalized program. Each person needs to be dealt with differently. And so in 2014, we reported in, in a peer-reviewed journal the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline. And of course, not surprisingly, there's all sorts of pushback. How dare you say this? These people didn't have Alzheimer's. So we're now publishing 50 more who have very well-documented improvement and very well-documented Alzheimer's disease. Let me show you a few of the first survivors of Alzheimer's disease. So here's a guy, he's actually now 74. APOE4 positive, very typical story. Already had a PET scan, typical of Alzheimer's disease. You essentially get two L's, temporoparietal reduction in glucose utilization in your brain. Neuropsych testing showed that he was declining. Way, you can see down to the third percentile here, unable to remember lock combination, faces schedule. Difficulty at work, difficulty with numbers. He had been able to add numbers very quickly in his head. So he had early Alzheimer's disease. He improved within six months. Um, interestingly, his wife called me and said, you know, you missed the most important thing. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he was actually increasing, accelerating in his decline, which is a common thing. So after two years, he was much, much better. We asked him to go back and get his neuropsych testing once again, and you can see here the dramatic improvement. He didn't want to go back. He said, look, I know I'm doing well. My wife knows I'm doing well. Uh, my coworkers know I'm doing well. The last thing I want to do is have the neuropsychologist, who's always been kind of negative, say, look, you, you, know, you are doing poorly. Well, you can see here just dramatic improvements in his quantitative scores. For example, his auditory delayed memory from 13th percentile to 79th percentile. So this person is now four and a half years out. The longest we have are a little over six years out, and he's doing very, very well. Here's another person who came actually to see me at UCLA in, in 2014. Family history, both parents died with dementia. Very well documented. This guy is a brilliant physician himself. ApoE4 positive, amyloid PET markedly positive, FDG PET typical for Alzheimer's. Hippocampal volume reduced. Neuropsych testing showed that he was already well into MCI. His HSCRP was high, so he had an inflammatory state. His homocysteine, much higher than it should be. His vitamin D, too low. 
His testosterone was, it was low as well, his free T3. So he had many contributors. He responded beautifully, metabolically, cognitively, volumetrically to what we call recode, uh, which is a, an algorithm that we developed for this. His neurologist says he's normal, and here he went back, and, and you can see here, his hippocampal volume went from 17th percentile to 75th percentile. And we heard earlier beautiful work about stem cells and their relationship to the hippocampus and to the brain. So he responded, in fact, interestingly, the, neuro, the neuroradiologist would not believe this. He said, we simply don't see this. You can't see the brain grow like this. So of course we got the films, took them to another computer-based algorithm that showed that yes, this guy had increased his hippocampal volume. And he's still doing very, very well at this point. You can see here his gray matter volume increased by 23% itself. So he's doing very, very well. So just to, to encapsulate 30 years of lab bench research uh, into just a couple of minutes, let me show you what we found from all this research. What we found is that these chronic illnesses are really signaling imbalances where many things feed into this. So if you have osteoporosis, your osteoblastic signaling, all the things that contribute to making bone are chronically outstripped by your osteoclastic. These are the ones that are reorganizing the bone. If you have cancer, your cytoblastic signaling, making more cells, unfortunately, outstrips your cytoclastic, the turnover of the cells. And if you have Alzheimer's disease, in fact, what we found is that all of the things that contribute to making synapses and keeping memories are outstripped chronically by all the signals that are reorganizing. So you are literally downsizing. What we call Alzheimer's, and here's the big surprise, what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response to four fundamentally different classes of insults. So for each person, we need to identify what those insults are. And you can see this straight at the molecular level. You can see amyloid precursor protein, which is a molecule in the middle here, it can be cut in two different ways. If it's cut at one site, you get two peptides that support, guess what, making new memories, growth of neurites. They are part of making and increasing your cognitive abilities. The same molecule, however, can be cleaved at three alternative sites to make four peptides that do just the opposite. They are pulling back. This is no different, by the way, than what would happen, for example, if you have a country and you've got now invaders coming in, what do you do? You're gonna put down napalm. A-beta is like napalm. You are putting down things that actually will damage the intruders. And some beautiful work from Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi at Harvard showed that amyloid beta is quite a nice endogenous antimicrobial. We had found a couple of years before that that in fact it also is involved with downsizing. So if you don't have enough trophic support, if you don't have enough of these various factors, you downsize and you use the napalm approach to kill whether it's bacteria, whether it's fungi, whether it's viruses, or whether it's just that you don't have enough nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, testosterone, estradiol, you can just go right down the list. If you cannot support your wonderful network, you need to downsize. Okay, so 
In a mouse, we can do this easily because we know how we gave the mouse Mautzheimer's, but in a human, what are the things we need to do? Well, unfortunately, it's a lot of them. There are a lot of things that actually contribute. That's why we say 36 holes in the roof. You gotta, you gotta plug them all. What that means is that if you wanna develop a perfect Alzheimer's drug, this is what it will have to do. And this is why it is going to be very difficult to take one drug. Now, this doesn't mean drugs are unimportant. They're extremely important. But they're very good patches for one hole. You need to identify the other holes and address them if you're going to get an optimal result. So as I say, we tell the patients, you've got a roof with 36 holes. We need to measure and identify all of these. And we need to produce a new kind of physician. And this is where Mark Hyman's work has been so important over the years. If you look at the, tradi uh, the traditional Chinese physicians or the Ayurvedic physicians, for example, what do you have? You have physicians that get that there's a whole body there that you need to identify and treat all of these things. But they don't know about things like microRNAs and DNA and whole genomes. The 20th century physicians know about those things but don't know and aren't treating the whole body together. So we need to train a new kind of physician, right? that understands, that uses the latest technology, but understands that this all works together. So in summary, Alzheimer's should actually be, and can be, a rare disease. In fact, it should decrease dramatically with this generation. What is referred to as Alzheimer's, as I said, is the result of a protective response. Inflammatory things, whatever the organism may be, glycotoxicity, literally insulin resistance, trophic withdrawal. If you don't have enough support to keep up your brain network, you're going to downsize it, just like a company. And then specific toxins, and doctors have not been checking for these things in people with cognitive decline. There are four major subtypes and combinations, and you can see which these are by looking at the metabolic and genetic profiling. Next, cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's disease and its forerunners, MCI and SCI, is reversible. We've seen many patients now who have reversed this. As I say, we're publishing another 50. This programmatic approach should be applicable to other diseases, so we're starting to work with people. So here's a question for you. What is a more common neurodegenerative disease than Alzheimer's disease? The answer is macular degeneration. There are about 11 million people in the United States currently with macular degeneration. We're starting to work with patients with that as well. So we should be able to identify the causes of these various chronic neurodegenerative conditions. As you know, this has been the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. It used to be said, everybody knows a cancer survivor, nobody knows an Alzheimer's survivor. And so we're now beginning to see the first ones. So we should be able to reduce the global burden of dementia markedly and chronic illness burden and increase global cognitive ability through metabolic profiling, larger data sets, prevention and early reversal, patient researcher partnerships, and personalized programmatic approaches to cognitive and overall health. This is the way of the future. And much like the XPRIZE, we need to look at this differently. We need to look at healthcare differently. It's the old idea of wait till you have symptoms, come in, get a drug. It does not work well. It's not the optimal approach for complex chronic illnesses. And we're seeing this again and again and again. So we look forward to a world that has much less dementia. Thanks.
sit down. Right, thanks, Good to see you. So who needs drugs? I also uh, take a little pride in, in just noting that uh, there is uh, now in, uh, in the pipeline an Alzheimer's XPRIZE process uh, so that, in fact, we'll be looking uh, for out-of-the-box solutions uh, to this disease probably in, starting in 2019. Light-based techniques, a variety of Eastern techniques, but a wide variety of things that are not even on today's map. Next speaker, uh, well-known to all of you, Mark Hyman, uh, the director of the Center for Functional um, Medicine uh, at uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, and obviously, and not so obviously, but he is a well-known author. Mark. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Dale. Thank you for that. Uh, you set me up really well. Um, and Glenda and the Aspen Brain Lab, thank you for inviting me and having a forum for us to talk about something which is pretty radical, disruptive, and uh, I think out of the box. In fact, I think I'm so far out of the box, I can't even find the box anymore. So what I want to challenge us to think about is what Dale suggested, which is this is a condition, given what we know today, that is potentially reversible and treatable, and of course, preventable. And I just sort of had a nice conversation with a gentleman earlier who was running a venture fund who said, we're now focusing on prevention because we realize that all the treatments don't work and they're never going to work, so we're going to focus on prevention. And I said to him, well, I think the treatments that we've been using have not worked because we're thinking about the problem wrong. So I want to take you through this idea. And I, I began to first think about this probably 15, 20 years ago when I started treating patients who had physical problems who came to see me using this model of functional medicine or a systems approach, the medicine of why, the science of creating health, not so much treating disease. And I noticed that all their cognitive problems would get better, depression, autism, ADD, memory issues, even dementia, Parkinson's. And I was like, well, what's going on here? And up to now, we have mostly thought of the brain as this isolated organ on the top of our shoulders that doesn't have much to do with what's happening south of the border here. But the truth is that not only does your mind affect your body, as you heard about this morning, like jumping in ice baths, you can control your, your body through your mind. The body also affects the mind and the brain. And that insight led me to sort of look down, how do we, how do we rethink our approach to the brain? Now, nobody wants to get a brain that looks like this, which is Alzheimer's. The question is, can we change that? Can we take someone who's got early dementia or mild cognitive impairment or SCI and actually do something about it? Now, I've had my own brain issues. When I was younger, I discovered all this because I had mercury poisoning from living in China, and my brain broke. Uh, I had a documentary recently online. It's called Broken Brain. You can go to brokenbrain.com. It's an eight-part documentary, which explores all these ideas in great detail, deals in it. And I began to talk about these issues because of my own brain damage. And, and I wasn't able to think, focus, do the things I normally wanted to do. And, this was my brain, actually, after I'd already started fixing it, so I don't even know what it would look like when it was bad. And the, uh, the areas I want you to focus on are, let's see, does this work? Is this working? Okay. Oh, yeah. So look at these areas here, this holy part. That's not normal. This is a spec scan, which looks at function of the brain, not just structure. And then uh, later, you can see this is repaired here in the brain. I don't, and the holes aren't there anymore, and it looks improved. And this is possible, I think, at any stage of life, to change the function and the structure of your brain. Now, of course, everybody knows that we have a massive 
epidemic. We're spending lots of money. It's affecting a lot of people that we've had most drug trials fail, billions of dollars spent. Uh, and you've heard all this data. And there's currently no prevention or treatment that's offered to patients, as Dale said. Take Aricept, go home, get your affairs in order. And there's really no deep dive into the cause. And the reason we're in this state is because we're thinking about the problem wrong. We have a thinking problem. And it really resulted from Louis Pasteur, a brilliant scientist who came up with the discovery that there's microbes that cause disease. And those microbes cause a single disease, pneumococcal pneumonia, pneumococcal bacteria cause pneumococcal pneumonia that's treated by penicillin. And this is a magic discovery that allowed us to cure these deadly diseases. The problem is we've been applying this model of infectious disease to chronic disease and going for the holy grail, which is why we spent billions and billions of dollars on treatments and drugs for Alzheimer's that have failed, not just Alzheimer's, but heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Some of these things can be helpful, but they're treating the wrong end of the stick. This other problem is the naming problem. Linnaeus came up with a categorization of plants, and we've done that in, in medicine. And I think uh, Dr. Uh, George said very clearly that because you know the name of your disease, whether it's dementia or even Alzheimer's, doesn't mean you know what's wrong with you. It's just the name of the symptoms. And we're looking at the symptoms and not the cause. So functional medicine is the medicine of why, not what disease you have, but why do you have it. And it's also looking at the mechanism. So we need to completely rethink our approach to disease and look at the things that Josh talked about this morning. Was, discovery of how do we actually regenerate and repair and heal. We've been focusing on the disease system instead of the health system in our body. So how do you begin to think about what are those things that cause brain damage and get rid of them? And how do you put in those things that cause brain repair and healing and add those things in? That's the program Dale is talking about. That's the science of functional medicine. So the idea is how do we fix our broken brain by fixing our body first? And a lot of the things that Dale was talking about weren't things that are focusing on the brain, but they're focusing on our biology. And this was an article a number of years ago in JAMA, uh, which basically said the concept of dementia is obsolete. It combines categorical misclassification, we categorize according to symptoms, with etiologic imprecision, meaning we don't focus on the cause. So because you have the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, it could have five or 10 different or 36 different causes. And by treating a drug with a single pathway, you're not gonna find the answer to solving this problem. And functional medicine is really about looking at the roots of disease, looking at how our genes and environment interact to create imbalances in our system that then lead to the signs and symptoms of disease. Most of medicine is focused on the, on the leaves and the branches, not on the roots and the trunk. And this is the map we use. We look at what are the predisposing factors, including genetics? What are the lifestyle factors that you've heard about this morning? And how do these affect these fundamental biological systems that are required to be an optimal function to create health? That's what functional medicine is. So it's not about treating disease. I'm like, how do I get a healthy gut? How do I get a healthy immune system? How do I get healthy mitochondria? How do I get a healthy detoxification system? How do I get healthy hormonal and neurotransmitter balance? All these things are the, the questions we ask in functional medicine. So I don't treat disease. I create health, and as a side effect, disease gets better. So it's about connecting the dots, not looking at all these things in silos, but connecting the dots. 90% of our disease really comes from what we call the exposome, which is the, how our genes are exposed to the environment, meaning what we eat, we think, we sleep, environmental toxins, our gut microbiome, all these things affect who we are in this moment. And what we've discovered, as you heard this morning, was that there's this ability now of brain cells to connect where they were unconnected, and also to rebuild new brain cells. We can create neurogenesis, meaning even at the point of death, we're building new brain cells. So the implications there are how do you activate these mechanisms? What do you need to do? You take away the bad stuff, you put in the good stuff. So there's two simple questions. And this is not just the cure for dementia, but this is the cure 
for most chronic disease. What does the body slash brain need to thrive or need to get for optimal function? And those are things that Dale talked about, trophic factors, the right food, nutrients, hormones, sleep, movement, restoration, things like the yoga nidra. These are powerful brain reparative things that you can do, as well as things like community, connection, love, meaning, purpose, like you heard in the video of those Chinese folks. Those are all needed for us to thrive. And what impairs or interrupts the body's brain or function? Dale talks about dementogens, things like our inflammatory diet, toxins, allergens, infections, stress, sleep issues, as you heard about this morning, and sedentary lifestyle. These are all things that drive brain damage. So when we begin to look at this, we see certain common principles around dementia. One is inflammation. If you don't have inflammation, you're not going to get dementia. And we know the things that cause inflammation, and that's what we do in functional medicine. We're inflammologists. Uh, I heard from Rudy Tanzi that there are patients who die with a brain full of amyloid, completely clogged with amyloid, completely normal cognitive function. The difference? Their genes for inflammation are good. In other words, they don't have the genes that promote inflammation. And they can still have a brain full of amyloid and have no Alzheimer's. We're learning about how the concepts of disease are breaking down, like the gut is now linked to everything from autism to cancer to heart disease to diabetes to obesity to autoimmune disease to allergies. So normal conceptions and barriers and silos in medicine are completely breaking down. And yet, the practice of medicine today, our medical education system and our research infrastructure are all driven off a 20th century model. The Earth is flat. The Earth is the center of the universe. You know, I mean, this is the concepts that we're fighting in medicine right now. So what are the things that we know are dementogens that cause brain damage? And how do we get rid of those things? Well, this is what we do in functional medicine. We look at our diet. It's high in starch and sugar and high in processed foods, high in trans fat, high in refined oils. Those all cause brain damage. It's low in plant foods. It's low in omega-3 fats. It's low in fiber. And it's a lot of gluten and dairy, which can be inflammatory. We also are exposed to enormous amounts of environmental toxins. It broke my heart to see, you know, there's no fish or shrimp in those rivers or lakes in China anymore because of how we polluted the earth. There's infections. We now know there's a microbiome in the brain. It can be viruses like HHV6. It can be yeast. It can be Lyme disease, tick infections. It can have to do with our gut microbiome. I mean, when you go to the neurologist, he doesn't go, well, how do I treat your gut flora? But they should, because that has a huge impact on your brain. It could be allergens or things that you're eating or environmental allergens. It can be stress, sedentary lifestyle, sleep, lack of social connections, isolation, and brain injury. These all cause injury to the brain. So are you inflaming your brain? Are you doing any of those things? Are those things relevant? Who is looking at those things? Is your doctor actually assessing those things? Probably not. So let's look at a few quickly things that we know. Sugar, by far, is one of the biggest drivers. And you heard from Dale that you didn't see, the, maybe catch it, but on the slide, the guy's insulin went from 32 to 8. He was pre-diabetic. We know that pre-diabetes causes pre-dementia. And one out of every two Americans has pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. We know that sugar in, in, increase causes memory loss. We know that Ronald Reagan's favorite food was jelly beans, right? Gluten also is a brain toxin, and, and there's been links of, of, of gluten sensitivity and celiac with, with brain injury and, and white matter lesions. We process oils, which are inflammatory. We eat trans fat, which is quite dangerous for our brain and our heart. We're exposed to environmental toxins. We're exposed to mercury through fish and through our fillings. We drink a lot of alcohol, which in excess is a brain damage. It's sort of a U-shaped curve. A little bit's good, a little more is worse. We're exposed to all 3,000 food additives in our food supply, including excitotoxins for the brain, like MSG and aspartame. Aspartame, putting the dye in diet since 1983. <laughs> uh, 
uh, we don't have enough sleep, as you heard this morning. We have too much stress and not enough uh, activation of our parasympathetic nervous system. We don't exercise. All these things drive brain injury. And of course, some medications like statins may be linked to, uh, to neurologic issues as, as well as many others. Brain injury, obviously. So these are all things that we want to avoid. And of course, we now know that EMS and, 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 and all the frequency you're exposed to also may have an impact. If you read your iPhone uh, legal thing and you're going to dig down in the, about the iPhone, it says don't put it near your head because it's dangerous. <laughs> I'm not kidding. All right, so how do you then create brain repair and healing? And, and let's, then I'm going to take you through a few cases to explain that. So here are the things that we know we have to do, which are the foundations of functional medicine. It's basically the recode program that Dale does, which is what are the things we do to actually create healing? One is we use food as medicine. So high fat, whole foods, plant-rich, not plant-based, plant-rich diet. And in extreme cases, ketogenic diets can be very helpful, which is 75% fat, 20 plus percent protein, and about 5% carbs. It's a very extreme diet. But in, in extreme cases of things like dementia or type 2 diabetes, it can be radically effective. Intermittent fasting is a way to sort of activate a lot of the things like stem cells and lowering inflammation, increasing muscle mass, decreasing insulin resistance, which is basically eating between an, uh, an eight-hour window and 16 hours of not eating. Uh, exercise is medicine. Sleep is medicine. Stress reduction is medicine. Thought lifting, brainer size, I call it. Uh, nutrient optimization. So it's not about getting what the minimum amount you need to not get scurvy of vitamin C, or what's the minimum amount of vitamin D you need to not get rickets. That's the, what we call the recommended dietary allowance. We need the optimal amount to create health. So it might be, you know, you need 30 milligrams of vitamin C to not get, um, you know, to not get scurvy, but you might need 1,000 to get healthy. Or you might need 30 units of vitamin D to not get rickets, but you might need 5,000 to maintain your blood levels at the, at the ideal level. And you need the right hormone optimization, thyroid, adrenal, sex hormones. You heard from Joanne Manson, who are at the Access Circles, that estradiol in women who are taking it after menopause, not conjugated Premarin, which is a horse urine product, actually it can help improve um, your brain function and reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Gut optimization. Detoxification, how do you op optimize your gut, your, your ability to detoxify toxins and chemicals? How do you get rid of things like mercury? How do you optimize your mitochondria? These are the fundamental units of energy. You heard about ATP and sleep this morning. ATP is, is the thing that goes down as you get older. You know, kids bounce back really quickly from any insult. When you're older, you don't because your mitochondria don't work as well. And there are ways to activate your mitochondria through unburdening it, yes, but also activating it through nutrients and newer things that we're doing like, like um, NAD therapy and, and uh, mitochondrial nutrients like CoQ10 and lipoic acid. Uh, and of course, immune optimization, dealing with how do you get your immune system working. Um, maybe you do dunks in ice bath for an hour a day. I don't know. You heard that this morning. Um, so this is the roof with 36 holes. You can't just treat one thing. This is the failure of thinking. We're treating one thing instead of treating everything. And doctors go, well, how do you know what works? Well, if I say to you, well, you know, broccoli is good for you, so we're going to just give you three pounds of broccoli every day for a year and see what happens. You're going to get really sick, right? It might be good for you, but you have to do all the things that are necessary. So this is not a single cause. It's multiple things. And, it's, and so how do we treat by cause and not by symptom or geography? We use this map and we do a cognoscopy. Dale talked about this. This is exactly what it is. It's looking at your nutritional status. How many people's doctors are testing their omega-3 levels? How many are testing their mitochondrial function, looking at all the hormones. How many doctors actually test insulin? I mean, they'll ask, almost nobody had their insulin checked. It's probably the single most important predictor of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and Alzheimer's, and your doctors aren't trained to look at it. 
Uh, we look at our immune status, allergens, inflammatory markers, looking for hidden infections, looking at our toxic load, uh, environmental toxins like mold toxins, detox enzymes, looking at your mitochondria, looking at your gut, looking at sleep studies, as you heard about this morning, looking at your genetics, looking at neurocognitive testing, imaging, and maybe CSF fluid. So these are all things that can be done, but most doctors are not trained to identify these issues, to test them, and to interpret them. So this is really outside the box, but what Dale found through his research was all these things are in the literature, but they're not being applied. And there are things that I found clinically that I used to see the same results as Dale's having. So let's just talk about a few cases, and then we're gonna have a chance to have a conversation a little bit later. Uh, this is a woman I saw who uh, was 76, diagnosed with MCI, early cognitive impairment. Uh, she was on Crestor, she drank wine every night, her mother had dementia, she had inflammation. So she had ANA, which is an autoimmune thing, she had a rash on her face, hair was falling out, might be thyroid. Uh, she had a lot of tuna consumption, many dental fillings, and mold exposure. So these are toxic insults. So we take a different kind of history. We do a cognoscopy. Uh, we found she had nutritional deficiencies of B12 and folate and B6 and magnesium and D and zinc. And she had the gene that makes her difficult to, to, to metabolize folate. She also had low thyroid. She had adrenal function that was not optimized. She ate a lot of sushi and she had a lot of fillings which absorbed in the body. We know that, for example, in Alzheimer's patients, uh, you can measure the square, um, the surface area of the amalgams in the mouth and it correlates with them mercury in the brain. And we know it's the most potent neurotoxin out there. So she had extremely high levels of mercury. Uh, she had ApoE34, she had mold exposure, she had mitochondrial issues uh, on testing, she had food sensitivity, she had bad bugs growing in her gut, and she had a lot of inflammation. She had a high CRP. So what did we do? We, we didn't think that she had dementia, we just think she had all these dysfunctions that we were gonna get back in balance by creating health. So we gave her a little bit of low-dose thyroid, we helped her adrenals get better, we, we adjusted her mercury toxicity, we found she had detox problems, B vitamin problems, mitochondrial problems, food sensitivities, gut issues, autoimmunity, inflammation, mold exposure. These are the problems she had. Now, if I take 10 other people with dementia, it might look very different. Some of the themes are similar, but it could be very different. So what do we do? We fix the roof. We optimize her diet, low glycemic, low sugar, high fat, whole foods, phytonutrients, uh, dairy-free, gluten-free, a lot of basic replacing the things she was missing in terms of the B vitamins and nutrients. We gave her a little thyroid support. We helped her detox system. We got her fillings out. We gave her IV glutathione, saunas, oral chelation. We helped her mitochondria get better. We gave her herbs to help her brain work better. We stopped her statin, because it may increase amyloid in people with ApoE4. And six months later, she lost 14 pounds, that's fine, but she was 10 years younger cognitively and in every other way. She was bright, energetic, her cognitive function was normal, she went back to normal function, her CRP normalized, her autoimmune normalized, markers normalized, her gut normalized, her metal normalized over a couple of years, and she did well for five years. And then her husband died, big stress, she regressed. Uh, she improved a little bit, and then after seven years, we, we found she had more confusion, so I tried a ketogenic diet, and it was like she just woke right up. And she had clarity, orientation, memory, she was present, connected with family. Uh, and this is, you know, almost 10 years after a diagnosis of, of early dementia. Another woman uh, came to see me because she was having memory issues, cognitive problems, uh, and was told she had MCI. And she turned out to have very high levels of methylmonic acid and homocysteine, which indicate B12 and folate issues. They're much better tests than B12 and folate. So I gave her a B12 shots, high dose of a special form of folate, basic multivitamin, fish oil, and vitamin D. She was all completely resolved within two months and all her labs were normal. And I got a call from her 
about six years later, and uh, she said, uh, I thought I was worried when I saw her on the schedule. Maybe she was declining. She said, oh, Dr. Hyman, I'm going trekking in Bhutan. Would you mind telling me what I have to do to get ready for my trek? I'm like, OK. <laughs> uh, as a la last case, this guy was um, uh, pretty bad. Uh, and I wrote this article called Does Dementia Exist? Dispelling the Myth. Uh, and he was a seven-year-old guy who had uh, diagnosed of dementia, not MCI. Uh, he was double ApoE4 positive. He had genes that affected his B vitamins and glutathione, his cholesterol. He had pretty bad insulin resistance. He wasn't really overweight, but he had kind of a belly. Uh, he had very high homocysteine. He had low glutathione, which is important for detox. And he's from Pittsburgh, which is a place where I've seen the most toxic exposures of any of my patients because of the steel plants. They put coal ash on everything. They put it on the fields. They use it to uh, deal with the snow and the roads in the winter. And he had a, the highest level I'd ever seen. And he also had a 30-year history of irritable bowel syndrome, bacterial overgrowth. Um, maybe I get like two more minutes. I'll be good. Two more minutes. Uh, yeah, OK. All right, thank you. Uh, I'm almost done. Um, and so this is a, sh a test, that, uh, this is an article that shows that people who have ApoE4 have higher levels of mercury because they can't get rid of it, and that you can use this test, which is what we do. So we gave them, again, the same approach, low glycemic, low diet, high fat, anti-inflammatory, get rid of the toxic triggers, his high carb diet, his gut imbalances, his mercury. We treated his gut overgrowth. We gave him a removal of his metals. We gave him a lot of phytochemicals from crucifers and vegetables and plant foods to help his detox. We gave him omega-3 fats. We gave him minerals to help detoxification. And we gave him B vitamins. And he had complete recovery and was stable at three years. It was very impressive, because he was a guy who was basically sitting in the corner drooling and couldn't barely talk and had severe cognitive impairment and memory issues with, which, which affected his ability to completely function at all. He was, he was a CEO of a big company. He had to completely retire. And after his treatment, he went back to work and is engaged with his family again. This is a video, short video of him. I was diagnosed with early dementia and severe depression. I went from being CEO of our fairly large family business to not being able to go out, read, take care of my own affairs and my personality was changing. Using functional medicine, changing my diet, taking some supplements, and clearing the mercury from my body, I was able to get my life back. If this is true, if what I'm saying is true, what are the implications for what we have to do? What are the implications for research? What are the implications for how we have to change our approach to solving this problem? Right now, this is marginal. Right now, this is on the periphery of medicine. Right now, this is not receiving the funding from NIH or from philanthropy or from pharma. This needs to change because if this is true, even in one person, then what are the implications of what we have to do to solve this? And I think that's our challenge. So food is medicine. It's a powerful drug. And I think this is really the biggest driver of most chronic disease. I encourage you to realize that you can upgrade your biology with every single bite. Um, you want to eat lots of things to help detoxify. You want to exercise. You want to do brain training. You want to relax and meditate. You want to get enough sleep. You want to sweat and get saunas. You want to take some basic supplements. And you have to start early, because if not, you could end up like this patient who uh, had declining mental function and ended up uh, uh, wait, give it to me straight, Doc. How long did I ignore your advice? Well, he ignored my advice for quite a long time. So, um, 
the key is we have enough information now. We don't have to wait for billions of dollars more of research on drugs, which are going to fail. Um, we need to think differently about the problem. We have to put these things together in a systematic approach. That's our opportunity and our challenge, and I hope you all can help with that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You do, Peter. Thank you. Mike. Mike. Oh. Pete Holman. Sorry. Uh, is here comes Pete. Guys, we're going to have a little body brain break to get us moving and messing with our Alzheimer's susceptibility. Here's Pete Holman. Our great uh, trainer, Pete, you tell about yourself, Taekwondo champion, etc. Isn't it good? Here we go. Hello, everybody. I want to introduce you to my friend Fred. Um, this guy has been a trusted advisor my entire life. Great companion, uh, travel companion. It gets a little cranky sometimes, uh, but boy, is he a conversation starter in the airports. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what does Fred have to do with brain health? And the answer is absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just wanted your attention. Yeah, I'll give him a nice chair there. All right, let's see if this. Aha. My name's Pete Holman. I'm a physical therapist, certified strength and conditioning specialist, and former U.S. National Taekwondo champion and team captain, this was many years ago, uh, and I've lectured on four continents to trainers, coaches, uh, fitness enthusiasts, and lay people on the importance of health and fitness. And now I want to talk to you about today about exercise and brain health. By the way, Glenda and I had a great conversation a couple weeks ago, and she said, Pete, make sure they know why we're doing an exercise break. And it's really three reasons. The first one is that you've been sitting all day, so we got to get up, recheck the posture, and get some blood flowing. The second reason is that this content is cognitively draining, heavy, so we need to do something a little bit different and change things up. And the third reason, as you're about to find out, exercise actually helps with brain health. Folks, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is that we are living longer. I've got a client that just turned 90 years old. He's amazing, he goes to the theater, goes out and walks in Central Park. The bad news is that the longer we live, the greater chance we have of coming in contact with the brain-related uh, cognitive decline. By the way, anybody know who this woman is? Dying. <laughs> I mean, neither, I just wanna know who this woman is. She's amazing. Guys, before we do this exercise break, let's just lay the foundation, and I want to give you a little bit of research why exercise might be healthy for the brain. Cyrus Raji did a study, 900 subjects. He found that the top quarter that engaged in regular exercise had a substantial greater amount of gray matter in the brain. And more interestingly, this greater gray matter was in areas of the brain that had to do with memory. That's good for dementia. National Institute of Aging did another study. They looked at active mice and sedentary mice. And you're probably familiar with this research um, that has been done in the past with mice. The active mice have increased neurogenesis in the brain. This study was different. It looked at mice after only one week of exercise. 
And after one week, relative to the sedentary mice, they found increased neurogenesis in the brain of these rats, of these mice. That's, again, good for dementia and brain health. Now, the question is, we're starting to learn that exercise might be healthy for the brain. What type of exercise is the best? Well, a study done by Gregory Pons and his team at Hartford Hospital looked at 1,100 subjects. And this was a retrospective study. And they found that the subjects that were engaged in consistent aerobic exercise had three times the cognitive function than those folks that engaged in aerobics and strength training, multimodality. Let me say that one more time. The folks that engaged in a, uh, consistent aerobic exercise had three times the brain function as the folks that engaged in aerobics and strength training. So might be showing that all this <laughs> bicep curls is not going to my brain. It's going to my biceps, and we might need to do a little bit more endurance training, aerobic training. Now keep in mind, disclaimer, we need bone mineral density. We need lean muscle mass as we age, correct? So if you trip and fall off a curb and fracture your pelvis and die of pneumonia in the hospital three weeks later, all the cognitive function in the world doesn't do you much good, does it? So don't completely abandon strength training. Oops, I'm not sure what that got. Okay, how do you get in there? Guys, what we're going to do now is we're going to get up and move a little bit. So please, get up, slide your chairs in so you've got some room. Slide your chairs in so you've got some room. I haven't had this much exercise. And let's have a little exercise break here. How are we feeling? Aspen. Ready. All right. I think we're a good Hey, pine folks, real quick. If you have an ankle, a knee, a hip, a low back injury, scale this down, okay? We're gonna, you can exercise at whatever intensity you want. If you're a female and you're wearing heels, congratulations, way to challenge yourself. Uh, if you're a male wearing a suit coat, some of these brainiac doctors, maybe take the suit coat off. Let's, you know, loosen up here a little bit. Sure. I think I've got homocysteine on the brain after all this heavy cognitive stuff. Okay, first thing we're going to do, folks, is we are going to do a little exercise I call the New Englander. So I grew up in New England, and my favorite time of the year was the fall when all the oak and the maple leaves fell down on the ground. What you do as a kid, you pick those leaves up, and you threw them up in the air, and you made it rain. So what we're going to do is we're going to reach down, pick up some leaves, and reach up and make it rain. There you go, reach high again. Head and chest tall, get those leaves, make it rain. Okay. One more, splay your fingers out at the top, reach for the heavens, make it rain, excellent. I recognize a couple of you from the golf course in here, so we're gonna do a little golf exercise. I, if you don't golf, fake it till you make it, okay? We're gonna find our address position, so you're gonna stand sideways, eye up the ball, we're gonna backswing, everybody backswing, and swing through, good. Find the ball, backswing, swing through. Working on the hips, working on the thoracic spine. Find the ball, backswing, swing through. All right. Now I'm going to challenge you. We're going Phil Mickelson. You're going to switch sides. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's all about neurology. Get the, get the neurological system working. Now backswing left side and swing through. I know it feels funky. Backswing, swing through. Couple more. Backswing, get that rotation plane of motion going. One more backswing and swing through. Excellent. Anybody watch Wimbledon? 
there was a great match on yesterday, uh, Rafael Nadal and this guy Djokovic. And it's amazing. I love watching these guys because when they get ready to return the serve, what position are they in? Right here. It's called the universal athletic position. They flex at their ankles, knees, and hips. Their head and chest are tall. Their core is engaged. Okay, so that's your position. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump rope. Imagine you're jumping rope. Okay, just nice and light on the balls of the feet. When I say break down, guess what you're going to do? You're going to find that universal athletic position. Okay, here we go. Little call and response. Break down. Good. Jump rope. Break down. Keep it going. Simon says, break down. <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> One more. Break down. Good job. Man in the front. Excellent. Okay, now, guys, we're going to do something. One of the most complex movement patterns in all of time. I'm going to teach you how to run. I know what you're saying. I know how to run. You might, you might, you might not. So watch this. Right hand's up to your chin. Left hand is in your hip pocket. Okay, this is called pocket to chin drill. When I say switch, guess what you're going to do? Switch. 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 Okay, now, free form. I just want you pumping the arms. Okay, this is the arm pump. What you're doing here, folks, is you're engaging your core, you're resisting rotation, but we're getting some blood flow in the upper body. Head and chest tall. Pump the arms. Five more seconds. Here we go. Pump, pump. A little bit faster if you can. Five, four, three, two, one. Now relax. 8,000 feet. How's everybody feeling? <laughs> okay, now. We're going to work on the lower body. No arms. Just let the arms dangle. I want a march here. Okay, now I'm talking North Korean army march. Just <laughs> knees up, you know, feet flexed. There you go. March, march, march. Now, a little bit faster. Again, head and chest tall. Core engaged. This lady's ready to sprint. Settle down now. I'm going to put it together. And a little bit faster. Five more seconds. Here we go. March, march. Nice and light on the balls of the feet. Three, two, one. Good. Okay, now we've got the components of running. We've got the knee drive, we've got the arm pump. We've got to put them together. And this is where it gets challenging neurologically. Okay, we want opposite arm and leg motion. So watch, the right hand comes up, the left knee comes up. Again, right hand up, left knee up. Good. When I say hit, you're going to bring the right hand and the left knee up. Ready? Hit. Good. Set up. Hit. Good. Nice tall posture. Hit. Hit. Excellent. Now we're going to switch. Left hand, right knee. Left hand's up, right knee's up. Hit. 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 One more. Hit. All right, now let's put it all together. We're running in place. Nice and light. Everybody start with the right hand and left knee up. Okay, ready? And go. Nice and light. Running in place. Good. Keep your head and chest tall. Light on the balls of the feet. Nice work. And remember, the arm pump should be opposite. Reciprocal arm and leg motion. We got five seconds. Four. Come on. Pump. Three. Two. One. And relax. Okay. Can we do one more? Okay. Last one. 
Okay, now everybody, just close your eyes for a second. Okay, close your eyes. Imagine you're on 59th and 5th. Okay, Central Park. You know what I'm talking about, Plaza Hotel, Central Park South. And you're getting ready to cross from the Plaza Hotel to Central Park South. You look to the right. Your eyes should be closed. Eyes closed. Look to the right. Everything's clear. You look to the left. What do you see? A dump truck barreling at you. You're already committed. You're already in the intersection. What are you going to do? How fast are you going to move? Okay, open your eyes. You're going to move fast because we want to walk in the park. <laughs> so last exercise, I want you to think about speed, fluidity, cadence, rhythm, and timing. Let it go a little bit. Ready? Right hand starts up, left knee, and go. Running in place. We're going to slowly pick up the tempo. That dump truck's coming. Do not get hit, please. Here we go. Come on. Five, four, run, run, run. Three, two, and relax. Good. Now, Brenda has done something very cool this year. She started social media. Who in here does social media? Okay, you're aging yourself, or you're, you're telling your age. You're showing your age, thank you. So I'm gonna hook you up, Glenda, because you know, I do a little social media, and what you have to do is you have to capture live events, right? So what we're gonna do is just a quick post, and here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna say brain, and you're gonna say health from the visceral organs. I'm gonna say brain, you're gonna say health two times. On the third time, I'm gonna say brain, you're gonna say health. Raise your hands in the air, praising the gods of health and fitness and neurogenesis, okay? And go crazy. High five your neighbors, hoot and holler. We got to have some energy coming from the Aspen Brain Lab. Are you ready? So it's brain, health, brain, health, brain, health. Ah! Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to post this, of course. Hey, Pete Holman reporting from the 2018 Aspen Brain Lab. We've had unbelievable content today, a little cognitively draining, so now we're doing an exercise break. And we're gonna show you the camaraderie that we've developed here at the Aspen Brain Lab. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Brain! Help. Brain! Help. Brain! Help. Brain. Help. Yeah, go crazy! Help. Woo! Give yourselves a round of applause. Everybody sit down, relax, you did wonderful. Wonderful. Folks, I'm going to, oop, careful, Doc. We don't want to lose you. Folks, I'm going to leave you with this final message. There's very few things we can control in our lives. Can't control the stock market. The political uh, environment right now, can't control that. Uh, you can't even control your spouse. I've been trying for 18 years. It doesn't work so well. But what you can control is your health and fitness. And I love the doc that just spoke about uh, functional health care and really taking ownership and onus on your health, your diet, your exercise, your sleep patterns, your meditation, all this stuff holistically uh, applies to your health and brain health and physical health and overall well-being. So if you don't take care of your body, where are you going to live? Thank you guys so much, and enjoy the rest of your time. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I saw your form. That was excellent. Uh, back to the cognitive lifting.
Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Richard Brown, who's um, an uh, associate, I'll read my handwriting here, uh, an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia College of Medicine and a pioneer in integrative psychiatry. Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown, there. This will be a whirlwind tour. Ordinarily, when I talk on this topic, it's a minimum of three hours, <laughs> with usually 10. But what I'm going to say dovetails with what all the other speakers have said and can be easily combined. Okay. So common brain changes with aging, senior moments, meaning delayed recall. If you haven't had that yet, just wait. The next stage is mild cognitive impairment, termed these days mild neurodegenerative disorder. So the fact is when patients are inducted into a protocol for Alzheimer's, nine out of 10 patients are rejected. They may be having mild cognitive impairment, they may be having the beginnings of a dementia, but they're not like Alzheimer patients. And the doctors who do those studies are very careful about the ones they select to have the most pure sample. So the two most common types of dementia are Alzheimer's and vascular. Both have cerebral amyloid angiopathy underlying them. Okay, so you've heard a lot about amyloid today. We don't fully know what it's doing, good and bad, but it's very important. So in the vascular kind of dementia, you have a microvascular ischemia, meaning the small blood vessels are not delivering oxygen and exchanging what they need to. You have what one neurologist said to a psychiatrist who brought his wife to me, don't worry dear, you're just having mini strokes. That's what doctors call lacunar infarcts when they're trying to be gentle. And what happens is you get more and more of these mini strokes and they begin to get together and your brain looks more and more like Swiss cheese. And then ultimately you get big strokes years down the line. Now in Alzheimer's, you've got the amyloid, and the patients also have the small blood vessel ischemia, and then tau, tangles, come in. But about 25% of patients with Alzheimer's have the microvascular ischemia too. So you're gonna have several things coming together. So, delayed retrieval treatment options. So a lot of doctors come to see me to get something to help them with delayed retrieval or even early mild cognitive impairment. Centrophenoxine is a drug that was developed in Europe by a Romanian chemist decades ago. There are hundreds of controlled studies in humans and animals on this. It makes your nerve cells start acting like much younger cells. It makes the nerve cell membrane work much better. We'll talk about that. Selegiline is a drug that was invented by a Hungarian biochemist in 1960. He's 93, still doing great research. He's a chain-smoking, dumpling-eating Hungarian who just walks around Budapest with lousy air quality uh, for his exercise and still is doing great research. And he's been on selegiline for decades. Um, we'll talk about that. Selegiline delays brain aging in multiple ways. And there are thousands of research papers on it. We don't pay attention to what doctors do elsewhere in this, in this country. We don't look at that stuff. Rodeo Rosie, I'll talk about 
uh, when my wife and I, with Sakir Ramazanov, published our first paper on rhodiola in 2002, research immediately skyrocketed. And now three different research groups, one at UCLA, have shown that rhodiola delays aging and keeps three different animal species much healthier. And we know a lot of the pathways involved, which are relevant to things that have been talked about today. Curcumin, or turmeric, we know in India, there's a lot less Alzheimer's, and it affects NK factor alpha and other things to reduce inflammation. Resveratrol has mechanisms that are also quite protective uh, of brain aging. Serifolin lowers homocysteine and helps patients with cognitive impairment do much better over time. So serifolin, especially with N-acetylcysteine added to it. Cardioexercise growing data. An interesting area to watch for is intermittent hypoxic training has dramatic effects. And high-intensity interval training really turns back the clock and makes cells look and act much long, younger. And we've talked about the other stuff, control of blood pressure, blood sugar lipids. Uh, Neurosilk or cognium is a silk protein that helps mild cognitive impairment and delayed retrieval. And phosphatidylserine, there's over 30 studies showing that over 40, if you take phosphatidylserine, your brain after about a month, if you dose it appropriately, begins working like someone 10 years younger, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, for mild cognitive impairment, a crucial thing that has been ignored in the US after 30 years of research done in Italy, a little bit of s methionine, sometimes called SAMI, with acetyl-L-carnitine and acetylcysteine and B vitamins is extremely helpful. We'll talk more about that. The, the other thing I'll mention is celostazole, a drug came out in the US in 96. It's around the world. It's cheap. It's generic. It can reverse mild cognitive impairment and the progression of vascular ischemia if people are caught early enough. And there's a good bit of time to do it in. Picamelon is a Russian natural medicine that vastly improves blood flow in the brain and focus and also is helpful for, for anxiety. Uh, Biostrath is a Swiss herbal tonic that has over 33 controlled studies. And two of those studies were done in groups of 200 geriatric patients with major impairments of activities of daily living and cognition and physical abilities. And after three months, dramatic improvements compared to placebo, but it took three months. Um, Dinepazil's been tried for mild cognitive impairment, hoping it might prevent Alzheimer's. Zero effect, but I bring that up because some doctors think that maybe, because it helps Alzheimer patients for some months, that maybe it should prevent Alzheimer's. Uh, but again, selegiline is very important at a number of stages of this. Dementia, curcumin may be important. It improves brain-derived neurotrophic factor, as does exercise. And we have data that we haven't published that intense yoga breathing also does that too, dramatically, much more than cardio exercise, actually. And in animal studies, increased BDNF protects against Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Selegiline, uh, Selegiline is prescribed to dogs in America for Alzheimer's. There have been 24 studies in Europe. It's a cheap drug. It's generic. Uh, it's not used by neurologists here. Saffron has been used for 1,000 years in Persia and the Middle East for a number of things, including dementia. And I've taken patients who've stopped responding to Dinepazil, stopped responding to Namenda, couldn't button their shirts, and on saffron are dramatically better. 
and we need to look at why this is, and I know the group in Iran that has done the best studies on this, because they're looking at the old treatments to see how they're working. It's a great antioxidant in the brain, and it pulls amyloid out of the brain, too. Um, it turns out in Alzheimer's, combining SAMI with acetyl-L-carnitine and acetyl-cysteine and B vitamins helps early and late-stage Alzheimer's and even helps Aricept work better because Aricept tends to stop working much after about 6 to 12 months. Uh, Celestazole is really important, uh, and I'm going to show some individual slides on that. Uh, and it can be done with Alzheimer's, with microvascular disease, or just in the patients with microvascular disease. So microvascular ischemia or cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So mini strokes, lacunar infarcts. So this disease starts typically with bright spots close to the ventricles. There's a subtype that starts more in the subcortex first, and they kind of progress and extend over time. Uh, to the basal ganglia, the middle of the brain, the pons, the cerebellum, and you get over time bigger and bigger infarcts. And typically you see patients go into two years of mild cognitive impairment and then often slip into a vascular dementia. And it correlates with trouble with heart and often trouble with circulation in other parts of the body which are often not obvious. And a lot of the patients have falls and complain of dizziness, and when they see neurologists, they have no idea why it's happening. But in Japan and Taiwan and Korea, they began looking at this. And uh, let me just show you what this looks like. Okay, so you see uh, mild levels of periventricular bright spots. The ventricles are these little sacs of fluid in your brain that have numerous functions, one of which is protecting your brain from shock injury, uh, you get a moderate level here of the hyperlucencies. Hyperlucencies is doctor jargon for bright spots. And then you have severe, where you've got a lot of inflammation going on in there. And so celestazole came in in, the, in 1996 in the US for intermittent claudication. Who knows what intermittent claudication is? It's where an old guy walks and his lower legs hurt so much he has to sit down every block or two for a while before he can walk again. It's because of lousy circulation. And usually he's got heart disease. Well, he's usually got brain disease too. It affects men and women. And it's very well tolerated. You can't take it if you have congestive heart failure. But most everybody can tolerate it very well. Uh, it's a, a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor. And it's even better than aspirin in large-scale studies they've done in those nationalized health systems for reducing the risk of stroke, it has multiple mechanisms. One is it drains amyloid out of the brain. And in fact, what they've shown recently in Taiwan is they've been prescribing it so much in the last five years or so, they've dramatically reduced the rate of dementia. So we're talking about a major, cheap, well-tolerated public intervention. And there's confirmatory data on that from Korea, cohort of 66,000 patients. When you have a nationalized health system, even though these are funded by private insurance, you can do these kinds of studies really quickly. They've done 30 studies, most of which are totally unknown to neurologists in the US. This is, I think, amazing. Okay, let's talk about some other things. So cholinergic agents. Your delayed retrieval has to do with uh, 
problems with the cholinergic system, nutrients, herbs, melatonin, nootropics, a term coined in Belgium about 1960 for the first drug that helped learning. And then there's neurofeedback, brain stimulation techniques, and mind-body practices. And remember, stroke and traumatic brain injury increase your risk of dementia. Okay, because of time. Centrophenoxine is amazing medicine. It has, it's still being researched. It looks like it also, in an animal model of Alzheimer's, prevents things from forming that form to produce Parkinson's. Uh, so it's not just relevant to Alzheimer's. Very few side effects, well tolerated. Uh, this is the first study showing patients with uh, kind of mild cognitive impairment improved on SAMI and uh, acetyl L-carnitine and cysteine. It's a large study. This is the study of early stage Alzheimer's. And this is a study of late stage Alzheimer's showing how effective the SAMI was with the other nutrients. Picamelon is this Russian medicine. It's a condensation of GABA and niacin and has dramatic effects on the brain. In Russia, it's most often been used for toxic or organic brain syndromes, which follow from drinking a lot of vodka. But it does a lot of things, and it protects damage from hypoxia to the brain. Uh, Biostrath I talked about already. Uh, you see the yellow plant in the left-hand side of the picture. That's Rhodiola rosea. This is on the border with Mongolia. I'm with a mountain guide and a famous Russian scientist who became a great friend. And he studied it for the Russian space program. It makes every part of your autonomic system work better. And the reason the things that Scott Carney was talking about work and the things that the horse therapy helps are working through those parts of the autonomic nervous system. And the only pill that helps those things work better is rhodiola rosea. And the Russians have used it for years, not only in their cosmonauts and its secret research. You will go to the gulag for revealing this in the, in the former Soviet Union. And it's used for their Olympic athletes and their special forces. This is a formula. They found several herbs help the rhodiola work better. Siberian ginseng and schizandra, which is what the Chinese emperors used to have special plots. And if you ventured near the plot and you weren't the gardener, you were dead. Uh, it helps racehorses do better, actually. Uh, anyway, ADAPT has had multiple studies. My wife and I have written a lot about this. Uh, but saffron looks like it's good for Alzheimer's. I think it needs to be looked at for earlier stages. It's also good for premenstrual dysphoric disorder and depression as well. And even though it acts on the serotonin system, it does not cause sexual dysfunction. It helps sexual function. And it reduces overeating of carbs. And there's a particular component in it that does that. Um, a good bit of data. Oh, you, you guys want to reduce carb intake? Uh, so, in the last few minutes, something that happens with a lot of Alzheimer's patients is agitation, aggression, and they don't tolerate things like Valium or Ambien or other stuff like that. And lemon balm can be amazingly helpful without causing any problems. And also sage is another thing, as well as uh, some other herbs I don't have time to talk about. Deprinil, thousands of studies. We can talk more about it if you like later. Oh, it helps sexual functioning. Wherever your sexual functioning is, it enhances it. And in the female animals, they never get breast cancer again after they're on it in six different species. 
No need to remind me. I'm fully aware that I've forgotten completely about you. Okay. So I know that was a whirlwind tour. There's a lot of other stuff we use. Uh, our website, and when I say our website, my wife, who's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, I'm a Columbia-trained and Cornell-trained psychiatrist, uh, do a lot of work together. So our breath book has been translated into multiple languages. We'll do that. The breathing also enhances all components of the autonomic nervous system, and the core breathing I teach was described in a Chinese Buddhist text 3,000 years ago as the breathing for longevity. Uh, and we have a bunch of other things, including non-drug treatments for ADHD. And uh, mm, let's see, okay. Uh, I have some more slides, but I think, yeah, the workshop tomorrow. So um, I've taken breathing techniques from several traditions and with also not only experiencing them but studying them with different labs around the world, we've put together things that have a dramatic impact in a short time because people won't do that kind of stuff for more than about 15 or 20 minutes a day. And so I'm going to give a small exposure. We do not only research on this with several different labs, uh, for example, Chris Streeter in Boston, who's done studies on yoga and brain MRS spectroscopy. Uh, but we do a lot of charitable work. Women who've been trafficked, genocide survivors in Africa, were heavily involved in South Sudan, Rwanda, and we're working with uh, Bangladeshi Rohingya, well, Rohingya children. There are 300,000 kids with severe PTSD from Myanmar in Bangladesh and we're doing online training, but I'll be going over there when the monsoon is done. So I will do the kind of breathing practice. We're working in New York City public schools. We have a whole community, upstate Rust Belt community with a lot of opioid overdoses with the help of the Commissioner of Mental Health. We're bringing that into an area. So this is something that everybody can benefit from uh, in every way. Thank you for mentioning that, Glenda. Well, thank you all. This was brilliant. I hope even that some of you learned something from each other. I learned something from each of you. I know with the fast note-taking, a lot of people learned a lot of things and have a lot of questions. I'm just going to ask a few if they're not really answerable or relevant. You can forget it. Uh, for women, Alzheimer's is more common than breast cancer, as women make up over 65% of the patients and 60% of the caregivers. Uh, as we said, uh, every 65 seconds a new brain develops Alzheimer's. Uh, Two-thirds of those brains belong to women, so women are at the epicenter of the Alzheimer's crisis. Do scientists know why this is true? So, I say I don't have a microphone, but... So, so, so first of all, scientists don't know for sure why that's true, but there are some good guesses. Uh, number one, um, as you know, there is a rapid drop-off in women of steroid hormones, estradiol, and people, uh, when you have this decrease in estradiol, you have changes in your PET scan that in some ways mirror those of Alzheimer's, even if you don't develop Alzheimer's disease per se. The second thing that we've noticed um, and this may or may not turn out to be relevant, is that when you have specific toxins, you sequester them. And a good example, and perhaps the best example, is mercury that Mark mentioned. 
So you store this mercury in your bones for years. What happens as you approach menopause? You change, and your organs as well, yes. You change your ratio of the osteoblastic activity to the osteoclastic activity. So you now are starting, even though you don't yet have osteoporosis, you are starting to release the very things that you sequestered. And we see many people who develop around the time of menopause their initial symptoms of cognitive decline. And they do better on bioidentical hormone replacement and on reductions in their toxins. So those at least are two hypothetical reasons that may explain it, but overall we don't know for sure. Is anybody in particular studying that? Just curious, because it's such a big issue for women. I'd like to know if there are research centers that are studying it. There are a number of research centers beginning to look at this. Uh, the Connor Center, obviously, at uh, MGH, and, and then now the public health uh, um, a, a program up at, uh, uh, up at Harvard, Law, uh, Harvard Medical School, Harvard Law School, my alma mater, Harvard Medical School. But there are other centers of women's health around the country, and increasingly they're beginning to knit themselves together in terms of looking at this issue. Yeah, we're definitely looking at that. And, and, you know, Access Circles have begun to put together a program around this, around brain health as well as some other diseases that peculiarly affect women. Just a slight aside, coming back to Radiola. What got the Soviets interested in studying rhodiola is it was used widely in the rural Republic of Georgia, and they began studying it around 1960. And some of the research we've done has shown that rhodiola has a dramatic effect on the estrogen receptors, including menopausally. So they work better, like much younger receptors, and they don't stimulate them to go toward cancer. So we, my wife published a paper on rhodiola as a selective estrogen receptor modulator without the problems of prescription receptor modulators. So far, only women seem to be interested in her paper. <laughs> um, is it true that the keto diet is supposed to be good for brain health and effective against Alzheimer's? I'm sure I'll try to take a hit at that. Yeah, I think, I think you know. Or, or how serious must it be? Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, it's basically your body has the ability to run on two fuel sources, sugar or fat, glucose or ketones. And when you're starving or you don't, you don't eat carbs or sugar, you actually produce these ketones. It turns out they're a much cleaner burning fuel. The brain prefers them. It improves mitochondrial function, which is one of the changes that happens in the brain with aging and Alzheimer's. And it seems to enhance cognitive performance, and it does all the things that you want to do to reverse aging, including increasing stem cells, decreasing inflammation, increasing antioxidant enzymes, reducing insulin resistance, building muscle mass, reducing bone loss, and so on. So in, in a whole series of cognitive problems, it's been found to be very effective. It was first developed for epilepsy, when no drugs work. Uh, it's been shown to be effective in brain cancer, in autism, and in, in Alzheimer's. And I think there's some good preliminary studies that indicate that it can be effective. And D Dale and I clinically have found that it is probably one of the biggest levers you can use to improve cognitive function in people with dementia. How serious would you have to be? I understand it's a very well. It's a you know like Benjamin Franklin is like a pound of pre a pound of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you if you got MCI, or you have dementia, I think it's worth a try. And you know again, as you begin to improve, you can see what your you know what your flexibility is. But you know it's it's tough. Like if you're a diabetic, a type two diabetic, and you've been kind of abused your body your whole life, you can reverse it with a ketogenic diet. But the question is, can you get off it? You know, if you were, if you've increased metabolic flexibility, you might be able to tolerate a little more carbs. But, you know, 
What most people don't realize is that, you know, you heard today that the glucose, you know, 25% of the body's glucose is used in the brain, but the brain doesn't need any glucose. In fact, you can run completely on ketones. So it requires a lot of energy, but it can come from different sources. And it turns out that the ketones are maybe a much better source. Well, a clinical question I have is, in epilepsy, if you even deviate slightly from the diet, yeah. you start having seizures. Sure. Yeah. And my question is compliance in my yeah. elderly patients with a ketogenic diet. Very if, hard. In other words, if, if they deviate slightly, yeah. how good a, a control effect do you get? We don't know. We need to study this more. We, we, we really don't know. I think, I think the uh, encouraging thing is there are a lot of ways now to actually do the diet to make it delicious and healthy and good. And there's, you know, it's, it's amazing to me, it's just the last couple of years, because I've been doing this for a long time, Almost all the top-selling diet books are now ketogenic diet books. Yeah. You know. Could I just comment on this uh, for a moment, if you've got the mic? So a couple of comments. There are many ways now, of course, I'm thinking about the biochemistry here, what is actually happening in your brain. You can get yourself into ketosis many ways, the low-carb diet, you know, how long you fast, whether you're exercising, and of course, MCT oil, MCT things oil. like that. But there are also now exogenous ketones. And for some people who are having trouble getting into ketosis, you can under certain circumstances. Um, you can use ketone salts, you can use ketone esters, and we recommend that people get very inexpensive ketone meters. Yeah. Check to see where you are. And no question, the people who are up in the you know, 1, 1 1.5, 2 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate range tend overall to do better than those are down at 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.5. So again, and there's... Well, that's like a finger stick you can get from yeah. like a so glucose monitor. But what is an exogenous, is it a pill? You can, yeah. yeah. You can, you, you so can you can take it as powders, you can take it as a powder, you can take it as a pill, yeah. And what's interesting is those actually dramatically lower insulin too. Fantastic, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Eric Kandel, a Nobel Prize winner, says that there's evidence that osteocalcin, a hormone produced by brain cells, is a Bo cognitive... Bone cells? Thank you. Thank you. Bone cells is a cognitive enhancer. Uh, he said that walking and other forms of exercise that put direct pressure on the bones stimulate the release of osteocalcin from bones into the bloodstream and might also maintain or improve memory even in old age. Anybody aware of that? Yeah, so uh, if you look at the central player in Alzheimer's disease, the molecule that gives rise to the amyloid that then leads to the tau phosphorylation, et cetera, that we associate with this disease, as I was showing, there is this beautiful balance, and inflammation pushes it in one direction, and the sum of all the trophic support that includes your osteocalcin, your estradiol, pregnenolone, free T3, on and on, nerve growth factor, BDNF, this molecule literally serves as a, an integrator of all these different supports. So if you are on the wrong side of that, you will downsize. And so all of these things, including walking, including all the things we've talked about with exercise, okay. help you to be on the correct side of that balance. Mm -hmm. um, this last question is for Dr. Hyman. <laughs> if it puts you on the spot and I've misinterpreted, uh, let me know. Uh, you spoke recently at an AARP group with a panel of experts. You all agreed, quote, memory loss is not a normal part of aging. Right. Have I said that correctly? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what most of us see as normal aging is really abnormal aging. 
That's really that, all the that's disturbing. We've always thought this is a normal part of aging. No, it's not. I mean, if, I mean, there's been studies, for example, looking at just simple things that people do. Um, Dr. James Fries did this research looking at people who don't smoke, who exercise, and keep their ideal body weight. They they don't they live longer because people say, oh, people are going to live longer, but it's going to cost more. They're going to be sicker. No. He created what, what's called the rectangularization of the survival curve. Instead of a long, slow, painful, expensive death, you kind of go along and then fall off a cliff. You know, you live healthy and then boom, you go to sleep and you're dead. And that is uh, a much uh, better way to go. And, 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 we, and we, know, we know that we can actually identify all these molecular and biochemical and metabolic ways in which we age and we can change those things, whether it's the mitochondria, whether it's inflammation, whether it's insulin, whether it's the hormones, whether it's the gut, whether it's stem cells, all these things are things that are designed to create health. And the more you can do to remove those, what we call dementogens, but they're also, they're also things that cause all disease. It's not just dementia. And you add those things that are, like what Dale talks about, that are trophic, where they can help repair the brain or health, you can reverse the process of aging. So if we don't use interventions, it will look like Memory loss is a normal yeah. part of aging. Yeah. But if we have good interventions, we're going to see a completely different picture. Yeah. Because for either centuries or ages, we've seen older people with memory loss, and we thought it was normal. No. You're saying... Well, memory loss, of, muscle loss. I yes. Mean, these it, things, if you don't do anything, don't, they will happen. Hmm. Right? If you don't put in the right inputs and take out the bad stuff... But we can really change yeah. what old age looks like. Absolutely. I mean, Stuart Resnick, he's like, you want to go for a two-and-a-half-hour two bike ride? I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like 80-something. Like, I mean, that's, that's possible at any age. But he's lived here a while. So I mean, I saw you dancing on stage. I'm like, I want to dance like you when I'm your age. <laughs> and uh, George wants to ask a question, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. So I just have one question for each of you, because each of you have uh, described in a fairly a dramatic and, at least to me, persuasive manner that integrative medicine, functional medicine, or integrating what's been learned overseas uh, can radically improve our overall health in aging. So you mentioned the 21st century physician. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine how long it is going to take to transform tw our 20th century physicians into 21st century physicians. So I ask you on how you do that. And, and, um, and Mark, I'd like to ask you, are there, not, are there ways to integrate more of what you're learning uh, into the healthcare system that may not necessarily be through the medical existing physician system? Yeah. Are there business methods? Are yeah. there other yeah. consumer yeah. products? Yeah. There's yeah. a 23andMe yeah. for lab tests, and you send in your algorithm, and you do mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing, I think, with you, Dr. Brown. How do we get a better integration of what's been learned overseas with different populations uh, to really understand how we can integrate that into our clinical Good system? Question. So, George, that's a great question. Um, I was recently talking to the vice chancellor of a major medical school who's known his career is about education. And what he said is, this is interesting stuff. He said, but we can't teach it until it's accepted by all physicians. And it won't be accepted by physicians until we teach it. So here, this is the crux of the problem. We have, uh, for understandable reasons, we have a medical system that is about tradition and permission. We hand down to people, uh, you know, ever since Hippocrates, how, how do we do this? We train our trainers' children. And uh, so the question is, how are we going to do this thing? Because it is disruptive. 
And I hope, as you probably know, Jeff Bezos is now talking about disrupting and has hired Atul Gawande to start the disruption. I hope that our medical schools will embrace this. I hope that our medical schools will begin to have departments that look at these sorts of multimodal approaches, not simply at the old-fashioned 20th century approach. But I think it will take someone like Jeff Bezos, and, and of course Warren Buffett is involved with this same mm -hmm. effort, um, to disrupt and to change medical care for the better. Because there's no question, when you look at the problems, when you look at the complex chronic illnesses, and how we as physicians have failed with them, there's clearly a need for such training. Yeah, yeah I completely agree with you. We have to you know, look at doing things that disrupt our normal care delivery because waiting for the medical system to change or medical students to get a different education is gonna take decades. Um, and part of the problem is a lack of funding for these approaches so we can prove. Imagine if we could fund a study that would show that we could take you know, 50 dementia patients and improve their cognitive function, increase their brain volumes, re reverse their neurocognitive uh, abnormalities on their testing, improve all their biomarkers. I mean, that would revolutionize our thinking about medicine because it would mean that we're approaching chronic disease the wrong way. So I think short of that happening and being widely accepted, it's gonna to be tough. As far as your question, I think you know, there's a lot of interesting innovation now in the space of healthcare. You know, when Obama wanted to talk about healthcare, he didn't go to the leaders of healthcare, he went to the leaders of Silicon Valley, Google. I mean, my, my friend and the former CEO of Cleveland Clinic, Toby Cosgrove, now works for Google. <laughs> so the, the, the innovations are happening outside of healthcare. And there's a great company that's in development now, which is really disrupting diabetes care because the, even though the research is there that we can use very low carbohydrate diets and ketogenic diets to reverse type 2 diabetes, it's not done, it's not accepted, and it's not applied. Even though we know the science of behavioral change, which requires a lot of um, support and connection and, and a lot of um, sort of more engagement with the patient rather than seeing them in a doctor's office for 15 minutes, we're not doing that. Because one, it's not reimbursed, two, doctors aren't trained in it, and three, we don't know how to do it. So this company has basically developed an online platform using ketogenic diets with type 2 diabetics completely outside the healthcare system with an approach that uh, includes daily and multiple connections with health coaches and with the doctors tracking their medications, their numbers, their weight. And over the course of a year, they reversed 60% of the diabetics, have completely reversed, 100% got off the main diabetes medication, and 94% reversed uh, their insulin needs or got off it completely. And uh, the average weight loss was 12% or 30 pounds. This is unprecedented, and yet it's still in the diaspora of medicine. And the potential for taking the kind of approach that Dale and I are talking about and, and Richard's talking about and scaling it can happen, I think, outside the healthcare system. It's gonna have to because there's gonna have to be business applications, digital applications, scalable models, so we can reach the 150 million people around the world. It's not mm -hmm. gonna happen through the healthcare system, unfortunately, but I think eventually it's gonna trickle down to the healthcare system. Oh, oh, actually, I'll use this. So I think one of the problems is we need a paradigm shift in another way is that I feel American medicine has tried to find ever more expensive treatments for fewer and fewer people to yeah. maximize income to university medical centers. And what we're trying to do, the people I work with, is find more cost-effective treatments that are affordable for thousands of people that address epidemics we have. And that means younger doctors that I work with, they're developing algorithms 
to search the world's medical literature. They don't care where it came from. They don't have an attitude. I've, I've had the attitude to things I've introduced in my career. Oh, those European doctors are so stupid. Their training is inferior. How you're dangerous, doctor, trying to introduce this thing from another country. The younger doctors don't care. And they're communicating with people all over the world and developing computer algorithms to search how many drugs work on TNF-alpha and beginning to use computers to try to figure out, okay, what are some of the things that work on multiple targets of the kind right. of targets you're right. talking about? That's great. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and the, the solution is really building like, you know, the digital systems, including AI, big data analysis, systems analysis of biology, and putting all that in a model that can actually be scaled and create decision support for practitioners, for patients, with all the uh, ecosystem of products and services that help support people making those changes. Thank you all very much. Is this fine on? Uh, wait, guys, well, hold up, because um, are, are you guys going to do book signings and things? We're all doing book signings. Okay. But I'm going to open this up to the, um, to the audience, but I want to tell everybody that if you want to hear more about some potential avenues, maybe a ways to either prove all of these ideas or scale them up, I hope the three doctors will stay up, and George too, if you care right, to. Maybe we can meet at one of the tables here after the book signing at, yeah. at uh, 430. Yes. So if you care to wait around and talk privately with this outstanding group of uh, presenters to us, uh, we can meet, they can meet with you right after the book signing, and even before the book signing, unless both of you are signing books? Yeah. And so after the book signing. But let me, uh, I think it's an outstanding privilege to be able to meet with them privately. So I know a lot of you have questions. Uh, yes? Thank you all for great presentations, incredibly informative, and um, lots to take away. Dr. Hyman, you mentioned NAD therapy. I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on that, whether you're recommending NAD supplements for yeah. healthy people. And um, Dr. Brown, uh, we heard a lot about inflammation today, and you did reference, albeit quickly, because we weren't able to get through everything, curcumin, turmeric as one element, perhaps, in addressing um, inflammation. Do you recommend turmeric supplements or cur curcumin supplements for healthy people thinking about the issues that you're trying to address? Thank you. So NAD uh, is essentially nicotinamide diriboside, which is part of the production of energy in your cells, or ATP. Um, and it, you know what I would say first is any supplement, any drug, if you don't address the root cause of the problem, it's not going to work or not work as well. In other words, if you have mercury poisoning, or your gut floor is a mess, or you're exposed to mold, or you have Lyme disease, or you're vitamin D deficient or B12 deficient, unless you fix those things, all these other things are not gonna be as helpful. But NAD, is, is, turns out, is, is an extremely helpful compound that helps improve mitochondrial function, and that is the sine qua non of aging, is decreased mitochondrial function. So there's a company called um, Elysium, which provides a product that's an oral product combining a derivative of resveratrol plus um, NAD, and it's been found in, in some trials to be very effective around all kinds of uh, issues, including neurodegenerative issues. Um, there's also intravenous use of this that's now rising, and some of the data is pretty impressive, particularly around brain regeneration. So once you sort of clean up stuff, 
then you can use what we call these trophic factors or healing factors to start to repair the brain, whether they're stem cells, whether it's NAD, whether it's curcumin or resveratrol, these are all helpful, but not in the context of having like a, you know, a lot of garbage in your house, right? Thank you. Does that make sense? Did someone yeah. have a hand up? Right here. So the NAD, riboside, also there's data that it helps older people's muscles do more intense exercise better. Uh, I think curcumin is, is a very simple public health intervention. We should have it in our diets like people do in India. That's one thing. And my feeling is we should be doing the right kind of breathing like we brush our teeth. So stress is, is on the tablecloth of your mind. Stress is like stains from eating food at your table every day. And the breathing seems to get rid of that stuff and makes your autonomic nervous system work better for hours. And it's such a simple public health intervention. And we're working on bringing it into several different school systems because the data suggests we are at a peak of youth suicide. It used to be it was just old folks who had a peak of suicide. Now it's an incredible young people's thing. So, you know, we want to change that. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, there's no disagreement about brain inflammation decreasing cognitive. There's no, there's no disagreement about brain inflammation decreasing cognitive function. But I haven't heard anybody speak anything about glutathione. Now we know that- I did. You did, you're right. But we know that the glutathione products don't survive the digestive process. But a good high quality whey protein, which can be manufactured in the brain, is a long way to decrease brain inflammation. And I think this, I'm just curious why more emphasis wasn't put on that. So if I can just say a word about it. First of all, uh, actually, the, the types, the subtypes of Alzheimer's that we first published in 2015 include type 3, which is toxicity-induced Alzheimer's disease. We see it all the time, and it's quite striking because it actually looks different than the other subtypes. Most, as you know, kind of classical Alzheimer's starts with difficulty with memory. That's the common one. But the, the type 3 typically starts with difficulty with executive function, with organizing. We hear this all the time. I ask people, you know, what if you had to uh, organize things and get out of the house within an hour? Oh, can't do that anymore. They have dyscalculia, di difficulty with calculations, difficulty with visual perception, aphasias. They're often very young. These are often women, 50, 51, 52, very common. And all of these people turn out to have exposures to toxins. They can be metallotoxins, like mercury. They can be biotoxins, like mycotoxins. Or they can be organic toxins, like DDE and things like this. And these people do, interestingly, typically have a low glutathione, because they are fighting the toxicity. One of the biggest contributors to that is the herbicides, which is glyphosate, and 2,4-D, which is Agent Orange now, which is being sprayed on almost everything. I mean, what he's talking about is glutathione is a molecule your body makes from three amino acids. But uh, it's the most important molecule in your body for detoxifying environmental toxins, for helping your liver, for reducing inflammation. It's the most powerful antioxidant. And when we're exposed to a lot of toxins or when we don't eat foods that help us raise glutathione like broccoli or garlic or onions or green tea, it tends to go down. And most of us have low glutathione. And there's a bunch of us, like that guy I mentioned, had genes that don't allow us to produce enough. And there was one large study that I saw in hospitals of people who were in hospitals versus people who weren't in hospitals. Um, most of the people who were chronically sick in hospitals has the genes that impair their ability to make glutathione. So it's, it, you know, if you want to learn more about it, I wrote a blog about it years ago called The Mother of All Antioxidants. I think it's called glutathione. Um, 
Just Google it. There's a good bit of data that Sammy, among the many yeah. things, it, it works on. Sammy works on 200 yeah. different reactions in the brain yeah. and body. Yeah. But Sammy dramatically improves glutathione yeah. in the brain. So that may be part of why that combo that I was talking about works. Like the N-acetylcysteine and the methylation. Right, all so that you build them together, the they work better. That's probably your methylation pathway, and you should be recycling that normally anyway yeah. to keep That's those levels active. Thank you. Let's, uh, yes, please. Just stand up and... So after all this... Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, after all this information, does someone take their six-year-old or their 9 year old go to the Cleveland Clinic and get a workup and figure mm -hmm. out what to do? Is you that, can. I mean, how else? There's 3,000 people things? on the waiting list for CS. Oh, wow. <laughs> like Cleveland Clinic in Florida or the original one? Uh, the original one is where we have our center, but it's, it's, it's honestly overwhelming because we're the only functional medicine center in a major medical center. And the demand is so high. And people understand there's a you know, need for a different approach. And uh, we just can't scale fast enough. That's the problem. But there are people around here around doing it. And Dale's trained, what, 1,000 practitioners uh, all around the country. I, I think, I don't know if there's a way to find them, but. So, so we actually have been training a network of physicians. Uh, we now have over 1,000 trained, as Mark said, from 10 different countries. Uh, and um, we've trained you know, Japan, China, all over, the, all over Asia, all over Europe, um, Australia as well. So, so the idea here is, yes, please, anyone you know, 45 or over should consider getting a cognoscopy. Some simple blood tests you can do, some urine tests you can do, um, and it, so now, as you know, online cognitive testing is very easy. Um, you can do it for, you know, for nothing, essentially. Um, and so it's good to see where you stand, see where your risk lies, just as you would look for your risk for heart disease with uh, your cholesterol. This, is, this should become standard for all of us. And the truth is that the things you're going to evaluate with the cognoscopy are really all the things that cause chronic disease, regardless of what it is. So one person, those insults might cause dementia. Another person, they might cause cancer or heart disease or diabetes or autoimmune disease or whatever. So. It's really a, a way to look deeply at your health status uh, in general. Let's have one or two more questions. Anybody? Yes, I, I have a question over here. I can't see with the light. I know. It's over here. I'm over here. Thank you. Couldn't see. I'm wondering if the recode or functional uh, medicine approach uh, has been successful for uh, a diagnosis of uh, Alzheimer's disease with. Parkinson's overlay or comorbidity. You mean like Lewy body disease? Or uh, it's not even determined yet with symptoms of Parkinsonism. Yeah. Yeah. In general, as, you, as Mark indicated, um, if the if the cognitive decline comes first, it's typically Lewy body disease. If the mo motoric difficulty comes first, it's typically Parkinsonism with dementia. If you get the dementia after that. Um, the approach we've taken was tailored for the biochemistry of Alzheimer's. We're looking at what needs to be changed for other things, as I mentioned, macular degeneration, Parkinsonism, Lewy body. But as Mark indicated, many of these things are helpful for resilience, are helpful for your health in general. So yeah. the, the difference, though, is we just don't have the data yet. We don't know yet in this specific example that you give. Although well, clinically, I can tell you that using this approach on Parkinson's patients, you usually see significant improvements, slowing or improving or, you know. Thank you. Back here. Go ahead. I have a qu question about the mercury poisoning that you've been talking about. 
Having practiced dentistry for 52 years and been involved in incontrovertible studies about mercury poisoning in dentistry, we learned that the most dangerous period is over within 36 hours after the filling has been placed. And the second most dangerous time is when the filling is removed. <laughs> and the danger is not to the patient, the danger is to the dental assistant and yep. the dentist. So I'm curious, uh, and very few are placed in this day and age today. They're all almost completely composite restorations, which don't even match the efficacy of a silver amalgam filling. But we know that we can't get away placing them anymore. So I'm curious where your studies are coming from and why you're concerned about mercury poison in relation to uh, Alzheimer's disease. I think America is alone in the, in the world in still allowing amalgams. Most countries have outlawed them. In Canada, they're very clear that you can't give it to pregnant women or children. Uh, it's being sort of not used as much. Um, I think they're better in terms of longevity and function than plastic fillings for the most part, but uh, they're being phased out because I think there's an awareness that there's an issue. In terms of whether they're causing a problem, yeah, I think the first few, few hours, and then of course when you take them out, there's a higher risk, but it's, this data is really clear that they, they vaporize, and when you chew, the pH of your mouth, your microbiome in your mouth, all affect the ability of the mercury to be removed. There are studies that show it even goes through the dental tubules and absorbed in the body, and you can do blood tests to speciate mercury, and I do this all the time, where you can tell whether the mercury is coming from fish or from the uh, inorganic mercury from the fillings, and you can see the levels, and you can see people who have fillings, and when they take them out, the go levels go right down. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we certainly have a lot of controversy in the dental field about this, but I can tell you after doing this for 20 years and testing people and seeing the effects and the benefits uh, that, that I have no doubt that it's an issue, and I think you know, clearly need more data, but they've also done many studies in animals and humans, which looks at the amalgam surface area, directly correlates with the amount of mercury in your brain, whether you're a sheep or a human or an Alzheimer's patient. Hmm. And I should add that, you know, you're absolutely right that uh, there are studies on both sides, studies that suggest that, in fact, uh, this is not a contributor, studies that suggest that it is. So, in fact, the proof is, number one, did you see a high mercury level in the patient? And we see it all the time. Number two, did the person actually get better cognitively when you lowered that? And again, we see it all the time. And in fact, as, just as a, one example, I got a call about two years ago from a guy, very successful businessman. Um, he'd already been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's, had a classic PET scan for early Alzheimer's. And I said, look, you have type 3 Alzheimer's, so you've got some toxin. He said, no, 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 no toxins. He ended up having the highest mercury level that had been seen in the lab for three years. And he's done very, very well with reducing his mercury. So, you know, it, I think one of the problems we have is with epidemiology, you're looking at large cohorts. You may lose the specifics of, of single yeah. individuals with these large cohorts. There's no question in that, that in single individuals, mercury yeah. is an important contributor. Well, there, there was a good NIH study where they looked at dental amalgams in kids versus, you know, the um, plastic ones and followed these kids over a long period of time and showed no difference in the outcomes. But when they stratified the kids according to their genes, and the kids who had the genes that impaired their ability to detoxify mercury, and there are multiple genes that affect that, those kids had a seven-year developmental delay compared to the kids who didn't have it. So it is depending on the person. I've seen guys who are in their 70s have mouthful of fillings and are perfectly healthy. 
On the other hand, I've seen people who were adversely affected by it. So it really depends on the individual. But uh, ask yourself this question. If mercury is safe to put in your mouth, why is it not safe and regulated by the FTA to throw in the garbage? It has to be regulated. Once you take it out of someone's mouth, you have to put it in a special hazardous waste disposal. Uh, we have one last question, Larry. Hi. <laughs> Why don't you say the question? I'll repeat it. It's coming. My hearing may be that because you said there is a breathing exercise that's very simple, and I didn't hear it all, but I was wondering what it is. Can someone show it to us? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Tomorrow I'll be leading people in breathing at the workshop at 12 noon. Yeah. The question was if there's a certain kind of breathing to help the brain, what is it and how do you do it? And can you show us? Uh, Larry's asking a, what is a specific type of breathing that Dr. Brown is going to uh, show us tomorrow? Is yeah, that what Larry the asked? The core breathing uh, was described 3,000 years ago in a Chinese medical text. And it was also discovered by Japanese and American researchers in Zen monks who'd been meditating for 20 years for eight hours a day. It took them that many years of meditation for their body to discover this kind of breathing naturally. And it's a kind of breathing Sherpas naturally breathe. That's why they can take the white boys packs up to the top of Everest. Okay, we look forward to that tomorrow at noon at the chapel. And uh, is Rod Stryker here? And at 2 o'clock, there's a workshop on Yoga Nidra with Rod Stryker. We're going to take one last question from Karen, who's on our board. So please go ahead, and then we're going to get to a book signing. Thank you. So we had some young people in the audience today, those STEM students. Yes. Um, if, if one of those students was interested in studying functional medicine, what would be their course of education? Would they go to med school? Are there schools of functional medicine? How would they go on to study this? Um, well, um, I am also uh, was chairman and I'm on the board of the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is a nonprofit educational organization that trains physicians and healthcare providers in this model. So that would be the place I would start. Um, you know, if you, I mean, if you want to practice medicine, you have to go to medical school. So, you know, my daughter wants to go to medical school. That's awesome. But I said, before you go, take this five-day course as a, the basic foundation so you have a framework for filtering all the information you're going to hear and put it in the right place. Because once you do that, then everything makes sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, ha you have to go through that process. Thank you. George wants to make one end comment, I believe. Yeah, my uh, own organization, because I'm a patient organization, I said I'm inpatient and I'm urgent. I want to start right now on some of this. Mm. Uh, and so we've worked over six months with insurers, uh, with Medicare Advantage in particular insurers, as well as with health systems and practitioners, uh, as well as policy people from Medicare uh, and NIH. And we'd love to start putting you into that to see if we can't accelerate some of this into practice. So we do work uh, with people who are driven by this in-service practice change through changes in policy and reimbursement, uh, through standardization that Medicare can impose, through working with the Preventive Services Task Force mm -hmm. and other mechanisms mm -hmm. that in fact can encourage this kind of introduction of this in clinical practice, uh, and as well as uh, consumers. Consumers can drive this. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, we shouldn't just think it's the provider side that we have to change. Yeah. It's basically getting all of you demanding all of your doctors 
to ask them the questions that basically yeah. all this material is aimed at. And consumers can change this. So we're actually now working on consumer messaging uh, to try and figure out how to introduce this into the consumer language with a campaign. And so we do have a prominent ex-president's wife who's going to be chairing this campaign. And so I would very much like to have you guys involved in that. I would yeah. also just say, uh, we've got to change this sooner yeah. than working in just medical schools. And no. while we have to work in medical schools, you may be doing it faster with your own training programs. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, figuring out how to get this in, because it's interesting the confluence between this learning and the interest of pharmaceutical companies in wanting doctors to better understand how to detect cognitive impairment earlier because they're developing prevention medicines. <laughs> so they want some change in the, in the, in the primary care and, and specialist care systems. So I do think that there are some forces here between this, the brilliance here uh, as some commercial forces yeah. on the insurance side who are deeply worried about costs, uh, not only Medicare, Medicare Advantage suppliers. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. I um, think we have. I'll just say one last thing. One last. Uh, you know, I, I, this is very frustrating for Dale and I because we see the promised land and we can't get there without help. And, and, and we would love if anybody's really interested in figuring out a way to help or support this work to come meet with us after the book signing. So I encourage you to, if you want to move this forward with us, you know, it wouldn't be a place for us to ask, get questions or medical advice. It's more of a how can you help us advance this field. The big picture. Uh, thank you all for coming. Come to the book signing. Love having you and see you next year.